brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target, Ian Scotto here, at Ian Scotto on Twitter, that's I-A-N-S-C-O-T-T-O. I know some of you who may not have listened to recent episodes are like, where's Jack Murphy? Jack is with Benny on a trip, and he's going to be out for a while, so you're you're stuck with me here, hopefully, Uh, you don't mind that, Uh, but you also may notice my vocal quality. Uh, not my actual vocals, but the audio quality, not exactly up to par with what you're used to. And that is because the studio is currently being revamped. And for the first time in a long time, I'm recording this on my little home setup. Uh, and I'm going to record the interview with Sam Faddis via Skype. But uh, yeah, since it's being revamped, I refuse to not let you guys have a show twice every week. So we're we're uh, working with what we have here and also bringing you and just an awesome guest on here. So uh, do enjoy and don't be, um, you know, don't turn it off due to the lack of uh, audio quality, uh, which, by the way, I might as well bring it up because I know I know someone's going to break my balls over this. Um, the last show, not quite up to actual audio uh, quality par, even though we were in the studio itself and to defend myself. That's because of the fact that now that I'm doing the YouTube videos, uh, I'm finding a happy medium between not having the mic in someone's face, which it usually is, um, you know, so that you can see their face on video, yet at the same time having them close enough that they sound as loud as I do since I tend to project and everything. And listening back, editing that show, I know that my vocals were significantly louder than Sean's, so... All I have to say is crank it up if you listen to that one because it was a great episode besides that. Um, The fact that with Malaysian Flight MH370, there's so little information out there that the instinct is to go conspiratorial, I feel. And that's what a lot of people did. A lot of people went conspiratorial. And I applaud Sean getting together with two experts and doing the opposite, saying, no, here's why these conspiracy theories don't hold up. Uh, based on the science, based on the little information that we do have. And uh, please read that article if you get a chance. Um, Once again, the article is titled, All Right, Good Night. Does Malaysia want to know what happened to flight MH370? And listen to the podcast, which was the last episode, episode 372, Revisiting Malaysia Airlines Flight MH370. With that, before we get over to Sam Faddis, um, and by the way, Sam is a retired CIA operations officer who served in the Near East and South Asia, uh, I might as well get to an email here, because I haven't done emails in a while. So this was sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. 
uh, from Willie Lucker to the editors, writers, and contributors to Soft Rep Radio. Hello again, and congrats on another great episode. It was in the... It was in this episode that you brought up the nomination of Judge Brent Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court by President Trump and mentioned a few things I was hoping you could clarify your thoughts on. You mentioned, quote, activist judges rather frequently, and I would like to know which courts, Roberts, Berger, Warren, Marshall, etc., would you consider to be activist versus strict constitutionalist? I hear different people from different ends of the political spectrum label different courts with different behavioral bents as one of the other one or the other with uh, next to no consistency in our academia a funny observation my constitutional law professor pointed out about the court is that its primary tool of checking the other branches judicial review is less an explicit tool of the court and more a self-proclaimed power of the court uh, given to itself in marbury versus madison 1803 in other words one of the key checks of our judicial system is a less constitutional mandate as a legal quirk figured copying a pic of my con law notes would uh, be a little gaudy so here's just a quick link to the gov site for federal courts detailing the quirk of judicial review which he links to at uscourts.gov. I would also like to know about your thoughts regarding Judge Kavanaugh's uh, role in politics since the 1990s, Clinton Star Report, Bush's White House staff secretary, etc., rather than discuss hopes or fears concerning abortion. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about his MN Law Review article in which he made a number of propositions legally requiring prompt Senate votes on presidential nominees, amending presidential terms, giving the president greater, uh, higher fireability of cabinet secretaries, etc. The most controversial position held in this law review, um, see the PDF attachment, was the judge's belief that presidents should potentially be exempt from civil and criminal prosecutions during their term as president. If possible, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, should you have time to respond. Looking forward to hearing more from y'all at the next Soft Rep Radio podcast. Please take care. Respectfully, Willie Lucker. Um, I'm going to do something that I feel like a lot of media personalities don't do often enough and say that I'll speak on behalf of Jack on this one as well. I feel like neither of us are experts on this particular subject, and I am, you know, I know very little about Brent Kavanaugh's um, background on law. You seem to know a lot more than I do, so I'm not even going to respond to all that. Um, When I do talk about activist judges, I guess, in that episode, I'm I'm being a little vague there, just talking about people who um, don't believe in sticking to a strict constitutional principle, uh, be it, you know, like I've heard Ruth Bader Ginsburg talk about looking at uh, foreign law uh, rather than just the the U.S. Constitution, um, or those who just outright don't believe in the Second Amendment. You know, that is being an activist judge. Uh, but more particular than that, you seem to have a much greater background than myself or Jack on this, um, but I do appreciate the email, and that's why when we talk about this stuff, like a Supreme Court justice, I think we go relatively short and skim over it, because Jack is definitely an expert on uh, a lot of military affairs. I don't know what I'm necessarily an expert in, uh, but I, I do have a degree in radio and a political science minor, so I do know some things here and there. I know some economics here and there, um, but yeah, my primary focus is radio matters. I can speak on that, I guess. Um, with that, before we get over to Sam Faddis 
As always, I want to encourage you guys to become a member of our clubs, uh, Crate Club, CrateClub.us. Every month, it's gear handpicked by special operations veterans. Um, that's if you're doing the standard crate. But we also have the premium crate, which is absolutely awesome, the operator crate. Um, just check them all out. It's CrateClub.us. I'm looking forward to that watch collaboration that we're doing with NFW Watches. That's coming in the near future. Um, and then Kuna, Kuna.dog. Um, if you have a dog and you're interested in a box that's specifically for your dog based on its size and its age, uh, Kuna is the box for you. And um, we have different experts in the field picking out a box every month that, that Kuna is working with and that we're partnered with. Kuna.dog. And also check out the Spec Ops channel. And that's specopschannel.com. And the reason I want to focus on that one for this episode is that we're rolling out that Inside the Team Room Intelligence Edition. Uh, The Odyssean is on that, uh, James Powell, and this next guest, Sam Faddis. So if you want to watch that, I know people are like, I can't find these on YouTube anymore. You know, we are a company. We're trying to pull a profit here like any other company and put out great content with that. So become a member of the Spec Ops channel. It's completely worth it. It's on sale right now, less than $5 a month, specopschannel.com. And let's get over to, for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, Sam Faddis. So joining us for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, although Sam has written for the site, is Sam Faddis, retired CIA operations officer who served in the Near East and South Asia. You visit samfaddis.com, at RealSamFaddis on Twitter. Um, and Sam just did the Inside the Team Room Intelligence Edition with us. It's on the Spec Ops channel. We're slowly rolling those out. Um, we'll get into all of that. But first and foremost, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So um, I think the first thing I'd like to get into you with you is just your actual background in the CIA. I mean, we have several guys on the site who work in the CIA, but I think that your background is particularly interesting, and I think people would just like to hear it from your perspective. Right. So I was a, an ops officer, otherwise known as a case officer, which is, you know, what what average Americans call a CIA agent, but that's not CIA speak for the job. So uh, I worked undercover, running operations overseas almost all my career and really all in the Middle East and South Asia, in other words, Pakistan, India, places like that. Got you. And um, people might want to know time frame and, and that type of stuff involved, you know, what was going on at that time. Right. So I came on with the agency in the very late 80s. So, um, and then retired in uh, late 2008. So, um, you know, I came on kind of at the end of the Cold War, and I really worked. I worked terrorism really from from day one, starting with uh, the days of Pan Am 103 and working a lot of Hezbollah stuff. But uh, over the years, worked probably every terrorist group with which we were engaged. Also, a lot of weapons of mass destruction work nuclear, chemical, biological stuff. Uh, My last job before I retired was actually as head of CIA's unit that hunts terrorist WMD worldwide. That was 
that was what I was doing when I retired. Wow, I mean, all of that is is particularly interesting. You know, what what stands out to you most during that time? Um, you know, I, I as I say, I started I started working terrorism from from day one, and uh, I think uh, what I learned very early on in my career was I came out of training and I had done done very well in training, never really had any issues, but I got on the street and started recruiting terrorist sources and working events against uh, the people that were killing our folks. And that was kind of like going to grad school in, uh, in tradecraft and intelligence operations. I probably learned more from uh, those folks over the years than I ever learned in our own training courses. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think you, you can't really get the full perspective on, until you're actually on the ground. Yeah, and I just mean that also, um, you know, some of these some of these folks against whom we are engaged and have been engaged are extremely extremely good at what they do. Um, I, you know, when I came on, we were already working Islamic. Uh, Islamist terrorist groups, but we were also still heavily engaged with some of the Marxist-Leninist groups, you know, going back to the Red Army, Red Army Faction, the Red Brigade, 17 November, these guys, and their tradecraft, uh, incredibly disciplined and incredibly meticulous, um, and uh, if you're going to work against them, you have to get every bit as disciplined and every bit as meticulous in what you do or you can end up dead pretty fast. Being that you were in the CIA for such a long time, how have you seen like the progression of terrorist groups from when you first became a member uh, of the CIA to now? Well, when we started, you know, going back to what I was just saying, if you're talking about groups like 17 November in Athens that killed any number of, uh, killed a significant number of senior American officials. Lauter Meinhof, later known as Red Army Faction in Germany. These guys are very, very lethal, but also very selective. Uh, they would, you know, they penetrate the best security in the world and take out very, very high priority targets. But they were also typically very careful not to kill indiscriminately not necessarily because they had any great degree of conscience, but because they were very worried about public backlash. Mm -hmm. uh, and any time that they staged an attack and unintentionally or inadvertently killed or wounded somebody who was, uh, you know, just collateral, they, they would often issue public proclamations explaining why it had happened and apologizing. Uh, obviously, that world has gone away. You know, now it's been replaced by folks who don't think for a second about blowing up a marketplace or walking a suicide bomber into a wedding or detonating a device in the middle of a mosque during worship. Um, so that's that's a uh, that is obviously a radical change. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, and I feel like we know this, but there's just such a departure between Islamic terrorist groups and other terrorists. 
Yeah, the, the, the whole move to mass casualty events really transformed things, and that that has been a hallmark of Islamic terrorism. Not not that there. I mean, the interesting thing is that even amongst members of Al Qaeda at various points, there has been debate on the topic of the justification for mass casualty events. Uh, you know, and back and forth as to how to justify this in according with in accordance with the Quran. But nonetheless, you know, debate aside, the reality is the move was made, and and really, as bad as it has been, when you think about things like 9/11, the aspirations on the part of Islamic terrorist groups are even greater. I mean, these guys still very much want to move into the realm of. Uh, true biological weapons attacks, uh, acquiring nuclear capability. You know, they they would love to stage attacks that would dwarf 9/11 in terms of death count, in terms of body count. Yeah, I've we've actually had a guest on um, by the name of Dan Gordon, who you know, very different background from you. He's actually a former Israeli sniper in the IDF, but he wrote a fiction book called um, Day of the Dead. Uh, Book one was Gaza, book two, America. But he's gone in detail about how he believes at the border with the tunnels that are being built, you're going to see the next terrorist attack launched that way into a place like San Diego. I don't know if you have something like that possibly in mind or, or some other way that something would be launched that would, you know, make 9-11 look dwarfed. You know, I think the reality is that there are almost endless ways in which this could be done. I wrote a book several years ago myself, which was fiction, called Kafa, which is walking through a biological weapons attack in the United States. I mean, to begin with, the United States is filled now with bio labs, most of which are commercial, and many of which have on hand inside the United States pathogens that could cause, you know, epidemics and kill thousands, tens of thousands of people. So before we get to the part where you got to smuggle something in from outside the country, which is definitely possible, uh, it's also entirely possible to just steal something that's already here. And if you're talking about bacteria, you know, for instance, what causes the plague? I mean, you can't, you, you can keep track of vials maybe if you're doing your homework in a bio lab, although frankly, typically they don't do a very good job of it. But you can't keep track of individual bacteria and this stuff grows. So the capacity to steal a small quantity out of a petri dish or out of a vial and then carry it out on you and grow it into a larger quantity, that's that, that exists all over the country, and it's really, really difficult to stop. How, how are you going to search every guy walking out of every commercial lab every day and make sure he's not carrying a small amount of the plague bacteria? Yeah, and I often feel like, you know, you live relatively close to New York City and you see the, you know, billions of dollars that go into keeping buildings secure, of course, keeping airports secure now uh, in a post 9-11 world. And I often wonder how effective it, it really will be in thwarting another terrorist attack. Yeah, I don't think it's very effective at all. I mean, the reality is with all, 
all due respect to everybody that's that's trying to secure these places because they're all trying to do the right thing. Um, going back to what I was talking about before about sort of getting a graduate degree in tradecraft from working with and against bad guys. And when I say with, I mean recruiting guys inside terrorist organizations to turn against their own. It, you know, when you do that, you learn how they think and you learn how they operate and you learn, therefore, how to counter them. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the vast majority of people we have involved in Homeland Security don't have any such knowledge. They don't, they don't think at all like the enemy thinks. So if they're defending against anything, they're really defending typically against how we would attack a target. Mm -hmm. is, that's interesting. It's bad guys who don't care if they live through the attack or not, um, who, who don't have the resources but are incredibly clever and resourceful and absolutely dedicated to the cause. So a lot of times what you see in the way of defenses, in my opinion, is irrelevant. Uh, case in point, cameras, right? Um, a camera is an interesting thing, and I, you know, if you're running defense, say on passenger rail, uh, you got to guard against a lot of uh, things, including just teenage kids spray painting graffiti on your stuff, right? So having cameras, I understand why you have that. To a guy wearing a suicide vest, a camera is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. The fact that you took his picture before he blew himself up did not dissuade him, um, or that you can identify who he was after he's dead. You know, that's irrelevant. Um, so, yeah, we got a lot of stuff that we do that doesn't really make a difference. You know, it's one that stands out to me. Uh, you know, I was just recently at an airport visiting Pittsburgh, and it's like this this thing that we still do, uh, I guess it's probably about 15 years after the fact now. We all take off our shoes when we board an airplane due to one man who had this, like, pathetic, failed attempts at terrorism and I don't think any terrorist is going to use their shoe at this point right so a, an awful lot of what we do consists of defending against attacks that have already occurred uh, the number one conclusion of the 9-11 commission was that 9-11 represents a failure of imagination meaning a failure of imagination on our part we failed to imagine this and and uh, so now we have in place all of these measures to prevent another 9-11. But as you just pointed out, you know, in reference to the shoe bombing, um, that's, that's great. But now you're defending against an attack that already occurred. What you're not doing is conceiving of what the next attack is going to be and getting ahead of the curve. What, was it frustrating working at the agency at that time? Because it sounds like you're someone who's a forward thinker who who wants to, you know, map out ideas that haven't been used us used against us yet, and that may not be the way the agency was operating. Yeah, it wasn't the way the agency was operating, but I mean, it also, you know, to be fair, wasn't the way Washington in general was operating. Sure. Uh, those of us that were working counterterrorism pre nine eleven. Uh, we're well aware of the growth of Al-Qaeda, the growth of Islamic extremism, and sounding those alarm bells for a long, long time. And op operation after operation that was conceived 
to kill or capture bin Laden or other things of that nature was, you know, were they, they were all shut down, turned off. You couldn't get approval to do anything like that pre-9-11. Um, and I know any number of, of colleagues of mine who put together operations designed to go out and neutralize this threat before it ever happened. And as I say, they were all shut down. Yeah, that's it's sad when you hear that. Um, moving on to something happening now and that I would say is in your expertise being someone who's worked in Asia. Um, what's going on with North Korea and the, the meeting that was relatively recent in Singapore between President Trump and Kim Jong-un? Um, we actually had Jack Devine on the podcast not too long ago. Uh, after that occurred, and, and he was saying because of the fact that there's guys in the Trump administration who are pretty hawkish on North Korea, he's he's relatively optimistic about what's going to happen from that meeting. I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah, I, I would echo that. I would characterize, you know, my attitude as cautiously optimistic. Uh, do you have to keep the pressure on? Yes. Do you have to be aware of the possibility that this thing will go off the rails, obviously, we're not fools. Uh, so far, so good. You know, they're, um, they're actually now dismantling, they, the North Koreans, dismantling the test facility they have used for testing um, their intermediate range ballistic missiles and as their whole program to try to develop true ICBMs. That's a really good sign. Again, we're, let's, we're not naive. We don't assume from that that we're out of the woods. But what we're seeing right now is, is, is pretty good. I, I think two things that the Trump administration did were critical. One, uh, they convinced the North Koreans that they might actually attack them. The North Koreans actually believed that Donald Trump might obliterate them. That's a good, that's a good basis on which to start the conversation. And second, you know, Donald Trump has applied some very serious economic pressure to the North Koreans and also to their Chinese patrons. He's made it clear to the Chinese that they're going to pay an economic cost uh, for their support of the North Koreans. And he's actually tightened the, the stranglehold on the North Korean economy. So as opposed to days in the past where they thought they could just string us along, I don't think they feel that way anymore. Now, again, six months from now, they could decide that uh, they've done enough and start backsliding on us. So this is going to be a work in progress for a while. But so far, so good. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because all of the people who were regarded as experts, you know, in years past said we we don't negotiate with a country like North Korea. We don't meet with their leaders. And he went against that conventional wisdom. Yeah, but he does it on the basis of the fact that these guys actually, first of all, he was already applying very significant pressure to them and to their Chinese patrons. And secondly, they actually believe there is a possibility that he might blow them off the face of the earth. Um, you know, negotiation, I don't care what it is, man, whoever you're talking to, it's all about leverage. Yes. You got to have some kind of leverage over the guy across the table or he owns you. 
And, you know, nobody believed that Barack Obama was ever going to do anything serious to the North Koreans. So why on the God's green earth would they ever listen to him? He, they could ignore him at, the, at will with no consequences whatsoever. Say whatever you want about Donald Trump. They don't feel the same way about him. Yeah, I also feel it, it brought some leverage for the U.S. to the situation when we turned them down at, at one point and said that we were not going to meet until they, you know, met with uh, our standards and we eventually did have the meeting. But I think that that showed a, um, a sign of dominance for the U.S. to do that. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, again, I, there, there are times when Donald Trump tweets something and I think, oh, my God, I, <laughs> could somebody have rewritten that for you? But But the bottom line is... He, what, what he did get across to that in very clear terms is uh, I might just opt for blowing you off the face <laughs> of the earth. And in fact, on at least one occasion, he said pretty clearly, and don't assume that nuclear weapons are not included in what I will use. I, you know, I, it's all on the table, man. If you make yourself a big enough threat, you will be exterminated. And, and for coming from him, they believe that. That's that's a good that's a good way to begin talk. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. And, you know, on this show, Jack and I, Jack Murphy and I have been very objective about the situation. But I echo what you say on that. And you're someone I would definitely consider an expert on this. Um, moving on to Russia, of course, a lot of people um, were offended by what they see as Trump taking the side of, of Putin over, you know, our intelligence. So I just figure with you as a retired CIA operations officer, I'd like to hear your take on that. Well, look, I, I don't I don't have any idea what exactly the president was trying to say at the news conference following the meeting with Putin. Um, it was his comments were inartful at a, at a minimum. Um, it, you know, then certainly not the way I would have written a script for him uh, for such an event. But let's look at this realistically. First of all, he's having a, a private one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin. No matter what is said in private, slapping the guy in the face in public in front of the world is counterproductive. Mm -hmm. All that's going to do is make him get his back up and oppose whatever you want. I mean, that publicly uh, causing somebody to lose face is very rarely a, I mean in certain situations it, it maybe it's called for it definitely not going to be the thing that's going to going to work with Vladimir Putin and secondly I would just say this if you look at the policies this president has followed in regard to Russia since he came into office right we got uh, the the Ukrainians asked the Obama administration for years for Javelin anti-tank missiles to counter the Russians uh, having after the invasion of Crimea and to deal with this continuing low-level war. They were turned down and basically sent MREs and first aid kits. This administration is now shipping top-of-the-line Javelin anti-tank missiles by the hundreds to the Ukrainians mm -hmm. and to a number of other Eastern European countries face-to-face -face with the Russians including Georgia. Uh, it's selling Patriot anti-defense, air defense missiles to the Poles and to several other Eastern European countries. All of this specifically to allow them to shoot down Russian aircraft in the event of a conflict. Uh, we got big war games going on in Eastern Europe with U.S. troops practicing moving rapidly to the Russian border. 
Uh, we got the Poles talking to us about basing an armored division now on their soil, a U.S. armored division. And we're in talks with them. You go down this this road. Oh, by the way, I should mention about what February, uh, we had a battalion of Russian mercenaries in Syria that got frisky and started threatening American troops on the ground, and we obliterated that entire battalion. Something like 500 Russian dead. So. It was very hard for me to square all of those actions with the idea that Donald Trump is in Vladimir Putin's pocket. These are the most hardline positions we've taken on the Russians in many years. Mm. So, again, I, you know, I would have liked to have heard him say different things at that press conference in Helsinki, but I think his actions demonstrate that he's pretty hardline on the Russians. I think that's a very fair assessment, and and I do think actions, of course, speak louder than words, which uh, sums that up. Uh, I'm wondering, Sam, are you working on any new projects, any new books, or anything like that on the horizon? So I have finished a book, which is a book about my team inside Iraq, because I took the first team into Iraq almost a year in advance of the invasion. Uh, I went in in 02. And that book is done, and it's sitting with the Central Intelligence Agency for clearance, as per my secrecy oath. And I hope to have it back uh, cleared in a couple of weeks, and see how fast we can we can get it we can get it published. I am also uh, at the very early stages of looking at a project to, in line with what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, to look at homeland security. You know, this many years after 9/11. Where are we really in terms of preventing another serious terrorist attack, particularly a mass casualty attack? And the idea for that is to go out and really look at targets, uh, you know, if the way a terrorist would look at them, to basically go case the targets, look at the targets, and and evaluate them. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to fuzz the lens a little bit at some point so it doesn't turn into a uh, how-to book for bad guys, but. Yeah, <laughs> I think we can manage that. I'm looking forward to that because, as you said, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be looked at that are not being looked at. And we're just viewing what has already happened, which I would agree is counterproductive. So I look forward to that being on the horizon. And another reason I brought you on, of course, as I mentioned during the intro, was we're rolling out that inside the team room you were just on on the Spec Ops channel, specopschannel.com. I think people are really going to love it between you and uh, James Powell and the other guys there. Um, I, I just want to hear your um, assessment of, of how that went and, and what people could look forward to on that channel. Yeah, well, first of all, we had a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it's just a very relaxed, informal setting. Anybody that's familiar with the feature knows how that goes. I mean, what it, what it gives... What it does is it puts a bunch of people from different, from coming from slightly different walks related to intelligence in the same room and lets you kind of talk about the things that are the same, things that aren't the different, share perspectives. Uh, I think that kind of, that kind of conversation is always fascinating. You know, you find the, the differences and the commonalities in the craft. I agree. I was I was a fly on the wall during the whole um, recording, 
and I'm looking forward to just seeing what makes it because it was a it was a long recording you know it was a long shoot that you guys did and a lot of great information out there so that's why we're rolling it all out in in segments and like I said I think your background Danielle's background um, James Powell and the Odyssean so different but I think there there was a lot of stuff people are going to learn when they watch that. Yeah, I mean I, Danielle is Danielle super. Some of the, some of the folks that were there, like her, I've known for for quite some time. Some of them I met that uh, you know that day when we were we were doing the taping. But it's it, it's always interesting to have, to have that blend of experiences. Absolutely. Well, once again, you can check out samfaddis.com at real Sam Faddis on Twitter, and that's Sam F A D D I S. Uh, anything else that you want to mention before we uh, wrap this up? Because I think this has been great, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that work. Uh, no, appreciate you guys having me on. Happy to do it anytime. Hope that you guys enjoyed that interview with Sam Faddis. A lot more great stuff to come as uh, August is on the horizon. Bringing a lot of guests on, whether it's uh, Pat McNamara coming back on. Uh, or uh, C.J. Woodruff, you might know from the fitness community, but who's also a uh, Marine Corps veteran, combat veteran, and a lot of other people that I'm working with who will be on soon. So keeping things interesting while Jack is away, um, and I might even bring Jack on at some point to let us know how he's doing and give an update. But keep your eyes on softrep.com for all the latest news uh, and as I said before, join our clubs, whether it's CrateClub.us or Kuna, who we've partnered with. That's at Kuna.dog. Um, and as I try to say as often as I can, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out tremendously. We're now taping most of these shows on video. So if you go to our YouTube channel, the SoftRep YouTube channel, you'll see all of that stuff. Um, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Ian Scotto. Uh, let me know how everything is going with you guys and, and what you think of these episodes. And please follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Our numbers on there are growing. There's SoftRep, uh, you know, has its own Instagram and Twitter, but I run the SoftRep radio stuff and I try to be as interactive with you guys as possible. So it's at SoftRep Radio. Um, you know, if you have, uh, if you have a review of a recent show that you liked, I try to retweet that. Uh, if you have any photos of some books that you've bought from any recent guests that you were uh, influenced by the podcast to uh, read, feel free to uh, tag us in those pictures on Instagram, and I may even repost some of them. So yeah, at SoftRep Radio, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. And I'm out. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.